I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to episode nine of the We the Voters podcast. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topcheski. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side no matter what side you're on. So, if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, I want to talk about a topic that comes with heated opinions and plenty of myths, public support. Public support includes programs like Supplemental Security Income, Medicaid, SNAP benefits, and subsidized housing. These programs and their effectiveness have been debated in recent weeks and years around the country. In the next hour, I'll take myths apart and find the facts about public support programs in the United States. We'll take a look at two opposite opinions. One in support of reducing these systems, saying they are overused and taken advantage of by people who truly don't need it. And one in support of increasing these systems, saying that they provide necessary support for vulnerable people in the United States. But before we look at these opinions, let's ground our discussion with some basic facts about public assistance and its history in the United States. Millions of Americans rely on some form of public support each year to pay bills, provide for their families, or put food on the table. Many of these Americans face financial hardships after losing a job, not being able to work due to a disability, being underpaid, or for other reasons. To help support these individuals, the U.S. put a series of public support programs in place in 1935, which are still used today. As of 2015, the U.S. Census Bureau reports that 21.3% of the U.S. population uses at least one program each month. This encompasses approximately 52 million people. Public support, government assistance, public assistance, government benefits, welfare, it has many names, but these all describe the same set of programs. For the sake of clarity in today's episode, we'll be referring to all of these programs under the umbrella of public support. There are seven major public support programs in the United States. These programs are Supplement Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as SNAP or Food Stamps, Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, Subsidized Housing Programs like Housing Vouchers or Public Housing, Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, and Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, aka TAMF. SNAP benefits provide low-income individuals with benefits cards, which work like debit cards, to buy certain foods and goods at authorized grocery stores and farmers markets. It is a federal nutrition program that can help stretch a household's food budget. This also encompasses food aid programs that provide healthy food for pregnant women, new moms, and kids under 5, free or low-cost meals for children at school, and monthly food packages and or coupons for seniors. Medicaid provides free or low-cost health care for low-income adults, children, pregnant women, seniors, and people with disabilities. This is a federal and state-funded health insurance program. CHIP offers free or low-cost health care, including dental care, for uninsured children and teenagers up to age 19. This program is intended to cover a gap when the family's income is above the Medicaid limit but below the individual state's CHIP limit. 
The Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program offers subsidies for part of the gas and electric bills for low-income families. It also offers low-cost home improvements to reduce these costs overall. Subsidized housing programs, which includes housing vouchers and public housing, provide low-income families, seniors, and people with disabilities with affordable private or government-owned rental houses and apartments. SSI offers cash payments for low-income seniors as well as low-income people with disabilities. Unlike Social Security, these payments are not based on an individual's prior work. TAMF benefits offer cash payments for low-income families on their way to self-sufficiency. It is a federally funded, state-run benefits program. These benefits are available for households for a limited amount of time. This program also offers non-cash benefits like childcare and job training. All of these public support programs listed here have income limits, and most require the individual to be a U.S. citizen or an eligible immigrant. These federal programs are also limited in many states by additional requirements, such as household size and financial resources. Public support also stretches into additional programs, such as unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. Unemployment insurance is available for individuals who lose their job by being laid off or placed on furlough. Each state runs its own program, unlike federally funded public benefits. In 2015, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that 43% of people who used public support programs used the service for 37 to 48 months, or approximately 3 to 4 years. Just less than a third of participants used at least one program for up to 12 months. The Census Bureau also reports that the programs with the highest participation rates were Medicaid, approximately 15%, and SNAP benefits, about 13%. In the period studied between 2009 and 2012, the average monthly participation rates grew for Medicaid, SSI, and SNAP benefits, while it decreased for the TAMF program. Federal public support programs have been used for nearly a century as a way to support low-income Americans and immigrants across the country, but the earliest state and community programs can be traced as far back as the 1600s. In 1658, the first public relief program was founded in New York. This program sought to address difficulties after a poor growing season and widespread illness. In this program, towns provided work opportunities in exchange for financial assurance. In 1778, the first almshouses were created to house low-income individuals. Then, in 1814, the first government aid for widows and orphans was available. This aid provided cash assistance for women with deceased husbands and their children. In 1824, almshouses were available in each county across the nation. These were considered successful at the time because of the economics. It was more cost-efficient to house low-income people together. Many also believed it deterred people from seeking assistance due to the quality of the conditions. There were numerous issues with the quality, including overcrowding and deplorable treatment. Low-income men, women, children, and people with disabilities were all housed together in places with limited resources. In the 1850s, a movement began to move children from almshouses into orphanages and foster homes. Approximately 100,000 children were moved during this decade into new homes. This movement advocated for legal protections, created nonprofit aid societies, and introduced new measures for child labor and public health. In 1856, Congress passed a law to reform poverty policies in the United States. This law deemed almshouses to be a public disgrace. It began a new era of welfare reform in the U.S., where aid was spread across several government efforts rather than funneled into poorhouses. Many of these mandates did not go into effect until after the Civil War. In 1897, the National Association of Colored Women was founded. This organization began outreach and support within low-income black communities. It established orphanages and assisted living homes, health programs, and schools for black citizens. In 1909, the Children's Bureau was created. 
This federal organization investigated the welfare and well-being of children across the country. Two years later, the widow's pension was enacted. This pension ensured income for children and widows who had financial difficulties after a husband died, couldn't work because of disability, or abandoned his family. In 1921, Congress passed the Shepherd-Towner Act. This act created maternal and children's health clinics nationwide. It was the first federally funded health program in the country. The Shepherd-Towner Act was the result of women organizing at all levels, pressuring congressional leaders, and taking advantage of their new right to vote. Through this act, women developed, implemented, and administered public clinics. Much of the medical community at large was opposed to this act and lobbied against its reauthorization. The act later expired in 1929. During the act's short existence, these clinics played an important role in lowering the child mortality rate across the country. In 1933, Congress passed the Housing Act. This act provided subsidies to encourage private housing market expansion amidst the Great Depression. This same year, the federal government created the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Public Works Administration. These federal programs created work opportunities and encouraged consumer spending through public construction projects. In 1935, public welfare was established in response to the widespread poverty and unemployment during the Great Depression. This was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal. As part of the New Deal, Congress passed the Social Security Act. This act created a pension system for elderly citizens who had worked throughout their lives. It also created unemployment insurance provisions for individuals. It is considered the beginning of federal aid provided to individual states. Title IV of this act provided matching funds for mothers' pensions to the states. It offered additional support for low-income families with children. Title V of this act provided federal funding for child welfare services. This act is significant because it established the federal government's role in supporting low-income children and their families. It changed the definitions of dependent children, households, and foster care. This same year, Congress passed the Agriculture Trade Act. This act is considered an early version of the Food Assistance Program. These programs purchased food and other goods and distributed them to low-income individuals and families. In 1936, the Agriculture Department established the School Lunch Program. This program provided lunches to low-income children. Then, in 1937, the federal government began providing funds for daycare services. This was a response to growing industrial needs as women filled jobs for men who had joined the service during World War II. In 1942, the Emergency Maternal and Child Care Health Program was enacted. This program was developed in response to the influx of women working during World War II. These women had little income and needed affordable health care for both themselves and their children. Federal funding for this program was given to the states to pay for their medical services. Two years later, Congress introduced the GI Bill. This legislation provided education, training, and housing assistance for soldiers returning from World War II. Some historians have called this program the most successful public welfare program in U.S. history. It was enacted to prevent an abundance of people from flooding the job market after the war. In 1946, the school lunch program enacted a decade earlier was granted permanent status. This program provided lunch and milk for low-income children at school. This same year, federal funding was eliminated for daycare centers across the country. This federal assistance had been established during the war to accommodate women who had entered the workforce. 2,800 daycares closed in 1946 as many men returned to work and many women returned to the home, taking up childcare full-time once again. In 1949, Congress passed a Housing Act. This act sought to address urban development by revitalizing struggling areas and developing new low-income housing. These initiatives were never fully funded and thus were both poorly developed and poorly implemented. 
For example, historians say black Americans were removed from their neighborhoods with the intention of replacing housing, but the housing was eliminated and never replaced. In 1957, Congress passed a new housing act to fix the problems the previous legislation had caused. This act was seen by many as too little too late. Poor housing conditions had escalated immensely, leading to a number of urban riots during the 1960s. In 1961, the White House held its first conference on aging. This conference determined the responsibilities of the federal government in caring for elderly citizens. During the 1960s, President Johnson's administration declared a, quote, war on poverty, unquote. This led to a series of great society programs, including Head Start, the Job Corps, Food Stamps, Medicare, and Medicaid. In this decade, adjustments were made to the school lunch program and the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, or AFDC, program that had been enacted during the Great Depression. These adjustments included expanding the eligibility for these programs and allowing states to use funds for daycare services. In 1964, Congress passed the Food Stamp Act. This act provided nutrition benefits and food assistance for eligible low-income families. It was intended to reduce farm subsidies and raise farm income, as well as aid low-income households. Then, in 1965, Congress passed amendments to the Social Security Act to create Medicaid and Medicare. These programs provided health insurance to low-income individuals and families, as well as elderly citizens. This same year, the federal government created the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD. This department oversaw policy and programs that addressed the country's housing needs, improved communities, and enforced fair housing laws. In 1966, Congress passed the Child Nutrition Act. This act provided nutrition support and food assistance for low-income families with children. It sought to provide more balanced diets for these children. In 1968, Congress amended the Housing Act once again to create the Model Cities Program. This program sought to stimulate economic growth in low-income urban areas. It is significant because it represents a shift from residential concerns like low-income housing to commercial interests like attracting businesses to low-income areas. Under President Nixon's administration, welfare programs continued to expand. States were required to provide food stamp benefits to low-income individuals. SSI benefits were consolidated to provide aid for low-income elderly people and people with disabilities. An earned income tax credit was established, which provided working low-income families with direct cash assistance via tax refunds. Congress passed the Comprehensive Child Care Act in 1971. This act provided federal funding for preschools, daycare centers, nutritional programs, and other support programs for children whose mothers were in the labor force. It sought to give support for low-income families where the mothers worked rather than stayed at home, the latter of which was the expectation at this time. In 1972, Congress passed the Women, Infant, and Children's Act, or WIC. This act provided food assistance, particularly dairy products and nursing supplies, for eligible pregnant women, nursing mothers, infants, and children up to five years old. This same year, the government established the SSI program. This program established cash assistance benefits for low-income seniors and people with disabilities. During the decade between 1972 and 1982, the federal government invested heavily into public housing for low-income individuals and families. It constructed approximately 1 million low-income units per year. In 1974, Congress made an amendment to the Food Stamp Act. This amendment eliminated initial food purchase requirements, which prevented some low-income individuals from participating in the program. It also further extended the eligibility requirements, making the program more available for those in need. This same year, the Community Block Grant Program was established. This HUD program provided grants to communities across the nation to revitalize urban neighborhoods, renovating housing, and expanding economic opportunities. In 1981, Congress passed the Omnibus Reconciliation Act. This act moved the responsibility of caring for low-income households from the federal government to state and local governments. 
It eliminated millions of dollars in funding for public support programs and changed the remaining funds to block grants, rather than limiting it to specific needs. This act illustrates much of the federal policy enacted during the 1980s for public support, which shifted the involvement from the federal government to both local governments and private nonprofit institutions. The 1980s were a time of significant welfare reform. Critics of these public support programs said they discouraged low-income people from working and trapped single-parent families into a cycle of welfare dependency. During President Reagan's first term, AFDC spending was cut, reducing the benefits available for working low-income people. Additionally, states were allowed to require the majority of people using public support to work or participate in job training programs. Beginning in 1986, there is a decline in low-income housing construction. The federal government constructs approximately 25,000 public housing units a year during this period. This same year, Congress passed the Tax Reform Act. This act offered tax credits for low-income housing and encouraged private sector participation. It was a Department of Treasury program rather than a HUD program. In 1988, Congress passed the Family Support Act. This act reformed AFDC eligibility with a new work requirement, the JOBS program. It also strengthened child support enforcement. In 1990, the federal government established the Child Care and Development Block Grant. This was comprehensive child care legislation. It provided federal funding for subsidized child care, costing $2.5 billion over three years. This same year, the entitlement funding for child care services was established. This federal program distributed $1.5 billion to each state for families who were at risk of returning to public support benefits. This funding was intended to offset child care costs, offering subsidized daycare services. Also in 1990, Congress established the Dependent Care and Earned Income Tax Credits. The first credit offered a refund for individuals who use child care, offering scaled deductions based on how much a family spends during the year. The second credit increased the refund for low-income individuals based on their family size. In 1996, Congress passed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. This act was wide-scale federal welfare reform. It eliminated the AFDC program in favor of TAMF, state-led work programs for low-income individuals. TAMF was intended to position public support as more than a safety net. Instead, it was offered to low-income people as a route to independence through employment, imposing work requirements and limiting how long individuals could receive benefits. This program placed a lifetime limit on cash assistance of five years. It shifted much of the responsibility of public support from the federal government to state and local governments via block grants. Since the wide-scale welfare reform in 1996, public support programs have remained largely unchanged. The federal government continues to fund these programs through block grants, which allows states to make decisions on the best way to allocate funds. Other support programs have transitioned to the shared model and work requirements established by TAMF. Today, public support programs offer cash assistance, food, social services, education, training, and housing for low-income households across the country. These programs are funded by a combination of local, state, and federal funds. In 2021, it is projected that the government will spend $813 billion on public support programs. This estimate includes $448 billion on Medicaid, $274 billion on the TAMF program, and $33 billion on unemployment payments. When the Clinton administration enacted welfare reform in 1996, approximately 13.7% of Americans were living in poverty. As of 2020, this number has dropped to about 9.2%. Alongside this drop, government spending on public support programs has also decreased. In 2019, 23% of low-income families received TAMF assistance. Studies have showed that low-income families that receive public support spend less money on food a year, including dining out and fast food, than the average American household. In 2017, the TAMF program served approximately 1.3 million low-income households. 
These benefits are worth about 30% less today than they were in 1996, as the assistance has not been matched to inflation and housing prices. In 2018, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that 11.3% of all American households received SNAP benefits for at least part of the year. These benefits averaged about $250 a month. Overall, as of 2012, more than one in four Americans received some form of government assistance. About a third of these people were short-term participants who received aid for a year or less. Nearly half of all Americans receiving public support are children under the age of 18. Many adults who are enrolled in public support programs work at least part-time. One in 10 full-time workers received at least some assistance in 2012, while about a quarter of part-time workers also received assistance. For example, 51% of adults enrolled in SNAP work at least 35 hours a week. After the break, we'll take a look at the first side of public opinion, that federal public support programs should be further reduced. Proponents say that these programs are prone to fraud and overused by people who do not need the services. Then we'll take a look at the other side, which says federal public support programs should be improved or expanded. Proponents say that these programs provide aid to vulnerable citizens and offer a route to self-sufficiency. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. Federal spending is a divisive issue in U.S. culture, and spending on public support programs is no different. According to a 2017 Pew Research Center study, support for public support programs falls markedly along party lines. For instance, 6% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents report wanting to decrease public assistance for low-income families. On the other hand, 37% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents report the same. Another example, 10% of Democrats want to decrease unemployment assistance, and so do 44% of Republicans. A 2017 Associated Press survey found that 21% of U.S. adults favored reducing federal spending for Medicaid, 10% reported holding this view strongly, and reluctance to fund public support programs is not only tied to Medicaid. The Pew Research Center also found reluctance for worldwide and nationwide low-income assistance. As of 2017, the government spent approximately 73% of its nearly $4 trillion budget on human services. This includes Social Security, veterans' benefits, education, and public support programs. Some people support reducing public support programs because they say it discourages people from working or becoming a contributing member of society. Proponents for reducing the amount of public support spending cite these reasons. 1. Public support programs are wrought with fraud and improper payments, which means people who need support aren't getting it, and those who don't need it are. 2. Public support programs increase taxation and are too expensive to maintain. And 3. Public support programs are ineffective in lowering poverty, and instead they encourage dependency on the government. Let's take a look at each of these reasons one by one. First, proponents say that public support programs are wrought with fraud and improper payments, which means people who need support aren't getting it, and those who don't need it are. The U.S. Government Accountability Office estimated that approximately 15.6% of public support payments made in 2020 were either fraudulent or improperly filed. This accounts for approximately $129 billion in fraudulent or misfiled payments over the course of the year. According to Federal Safety Net, this amount is more than the budgets of TAMF, Child Nutrition, Head Start, Job Training, WIC, Child Care, Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, and Lifeline programs combined. OMB is the Office of Management and Budget, a federal office that oversees federal funding. Seven public support programs are on OMB's list of high-priority programs, programs that have improper payments totaling more than $2 billion a year. The OMB says improper payments happen when federal funds go to the wrong recipient, the recipient receives more or less funds than they are supposed to, a paper trail doesn't prove proper payment, 
or the recipient used federal funds improperly. Proponents say that it is important to note that not all improper payments are fraud, and not all improper payments represent government loss. However, they say each improper payment slowly degrades public trust and integrity of government programs. In 2020, approximately 21.3% of Medicaid payments are estimated to be improper, 7.4% of SNAP benefits, 9.4% of SSI benefits, and 9.3% of TAMF benefits are also estimated to be fraudulent or otherwise improper. Supporters of reducing public support spending say that as of 2018, about $1.2 trillion in improper payments have been made since 2004, and examples of these improper or fraudulent payments abound. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. It says that in 2018, more than $1.7 billion were paid improperly in SNAP benefits because recipients failed to provide accurate or timely information. This meant the government didn't verify if these benefits reached people who actually needed them and instead simply sent them on their way. Proponents suggest that by using commercial databases for verification, the government could greatly reduce the number of people who improperly or fraudulently file for benefits, saving hundreds of millions of dollars in the process. A 2015 Inspector General's report found there to be 6.5 million active social security numbers for people over the age of 112. And as of 2019, the Heritage Foundation reports that only 33 people in the world match that age. Forbes reports that dead citizens received $1 billion in benefits in 2018. These payments came in the form of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and pension payouts. By using commercial databases to verify recipients, proponents suggest it could end, quote, double-dipping, unquote, between various government programs such as SSI benefits and unemployment insurance. They say this action could save more than $25 billion over 10 years. Supporters of reducing public support programs say that lawmakers can protect taxpayers and state budgets by enacting better screening before enrolling people in public benefits. By increasing data matching technology, states would be better able to cross-check eligibility criteria. And then, when discrepancies do arise, states can more easily suspend a determination until more information is provided. To eliminate fraud and improper payments, some states are enacting legislation to investigate recipients. Proponents say that contractor verification can lead to major cost savings for taxpayers. For example, in 2012, Illinois began to investigate Medicaid fraud using a private contractor. Within a year, the state canceled benefits for nearly 150,000 people whose eligibility was unverified and saved approximately $70 million in the state budget. The Foundation for Government Accountability is a conservative nonprofit. It drafted model legislation to preserve government resources by ensuring only eligible recipients receive benefits. In general, federal requirements check eligibility once a year for Medicaid recipients and every six months for those receiving SNAP benefits. To verify eligibility, states use federal agency information, and some use consumer credit information, such as Equifax. Proponents say that by tightening verification requirements, it would eliminate some fraud and improper payments. Model legislation put forth by the Foundation of Government Accountability requires recipients to prove their identity. It would increase the amount of times a year the government checks eligibility and allows private contractors to collect personal information about recipients. The foundation says that by canceling benefits for those who don't qualify or who are committing fraud, it could save up to $8 billion a year nationwide for taxpayers. Second, proponents say that public support programs increase taxation and are too expensive to maintain. The money for public support programs comes largely through taxation, and many supporters of reducing these programs say it is not the government's responsibility to say it is not the government's responsibility to care for low-income individuals. Instead, they say it is a responsibility much better suited for nonprofit organizations. Jeffrey Dorfman is an economics professor at the University of Georgia. In a Forbes op-ed, he wrote opposition to public support spending has nothing to do with those receiving aid, but instead, quote, 
libertarian-style beliefs in property rights, the difficulty of keeping their own fiscal houses in order, and a belief in the inefficiency of government, unquote. Proponents say that government spending should be reduced because it is not the government's responsibility to spread wealth around or force the collective to pay for the individual, period. Jeffrey writes, quote, An unbridgeable distance exists between private charity and public welfare programs. Private charities are funded through voluntary donations. Public welfare programs are funded by mandatory tax collections. If a charity forced people to donate to it, that would be called theft or extortion, unquote. Proponents say that opposition to public spending has less to do with the recipient, but instead issue with how far the government stretches. They oppose government spending because it spreads a lot of funds without showing enough results. Jeffrey writes, quote, A top private charity, such as the American Red Cross, spends about 91 cents out of every dollar on its programs. Another way to look at this is you have to give the Red Cross $1.10 in order for them to give somebody $1 worth of assistance. In comparison, estimates are that it costs the federal government at least $1.40 to deliver the same $1 in assistance. In my book, that makes the Red Cross a much better deal for everybody involved. Unquote. For example, some supporters point out that federal employment and training programs don't fill any need that's not already met on the private market. By reducing or even eliminating these programs, it would reduce excess government spending and burden on taxpayers. Researchers report in a 2011 brief, quote, Even though millions of Americans have been out of work in recent years, relatively few of them have sought out federal employment and training services. Instead, individuals looking for jobs and training mainly rely on personal connections, the internet, temporary help agencies, private education firms, and other market institutions, unquote. Supporters say that the government is not the only answer and that providing more aid to low-income households is not always the right solution. Jeffrey writes, quote, A person does not have to agree with the government taking some of her money involuntarily in order to give to somebody else. Wanting to choose how to spend your own money does not make you a bad person, unquote. Some economists point to two different economic theories when assessing public support spending. The first is called the Pareto Improvement. This concept refers to policies that improve at least one person's life and makes nobody worse off. These are considered win-win solutions that should be implemented. The second is called Caldor Improvement. This concept refers to policies that make some people better off and others worse off, but overall the community is better off. Jeffrey says that the government may decide to implement a Caldor policy, but these are not no-brainers. When it comes to public support spending, economists debate whether it is a Pareto or a Calder solution. Jeffrey says that public support programs through taxation is essentially income redistribution, and that income redistribution is not necessarily a win-win, or even fair. Proponents say that as of 2014, the top 25% of income earners pay about 90% of all U.S. taxes. This includes income and payroll taxes, all taxes, and the people at the lowest end of this bracket make approximately $70,000 a year. Jeffrey writes, quote, When the government asks for more taxes to increase welfare programs, that means the families bearing that cost must cut something which they previously could afford. When that happens at the same time as those families have perhaps already been cutting their budgets thanks to a so-so economy, it is asking a lot for people to go along with the smile on their faces, unquote. Additionally, supporters said that public support spending is on the rise, and this rise could cripple the U.S. economy. In 2012, the Congressional Research Service reported that 83 overlapping federal public support programs together were the single largest budget item from the previous year. This number accounted to just over $1 trillion, more than the country spent on Social Security, Medicare, or national defense. Proponents say that spending on the 10 largest of these programs doubled their share of the federal budget over the past 30 years. When adjusted for inflation, the amount expended increased by 378%.
In 2016, 538 reported that the Clinton administration's welfare reform didn't lead to less public support spending, but instead per-person spending has fallen. Proponents say that the biggest change is how money is spent. Under the TAMF program, federal funds can be used to assist low-income families with children, promote job preparation and work, prevent single-parent pregnancies, and encourage two-parent families. This is a directly opposite approach from the previous system, which slowly provided cash assistance payments to low-income families. 538 reports that some states have interpreted the new purposes very loosely. The result has led to a dramatic shift away from cash assistance and towards investment in other programs. In 1998, nearly 60% of TAMF benefits were cash assistance. By 2014, this number was reduced to about a quarter. Some supporters of lessening public spending say this indicates excess funds are being taken from taxpayers and don't reach people in need. The largest increase in TAMF spending fell into an other category, which covered child welfare, parent training, substance abuse treatment, and domestic violence services, among others. 538 reports, quote, Those programs might be worthwhile in their own right, but they don't have much to do with the original goals of welfare. In 2014, about one-third of TAMF spending went to other areas, up from 12% in 1998, unquote. Some proponents suggest that by reducing the amount of money given to public support programs, you encourage more streamlined spending and ensure more money goes directly to those in need. This would, in turn, lessen the excessive spending in other areas, which could be taken up by private nonprofit organizations who rely on voluntary donations, not government mandates. Third, proponents say that public support programs are ineffective in lowering poverty, and instead they encourage dependency on the government. As recipients of public support programs enter their workforce, earn more money, or gain more hours, some say they often lose a portion of these earnings through to increased taxes and less benefits. This predicament makes it difficult for low-income earners to transition into the middle class. In 2016, the Congressional Budget Office released a report that showed many low-income households around the poverty threshold face higher marginal tax rates than some of the highest earners. Some proponents, like Charles Hughes, say these rates limit their prospects, ultimately limiting their ability to rise above the poverty threshold. Charles Hughes is a policy analyst at the Manhattan Institute, a conservative think tank. That same year, he wrote an op-ed for the Foundation of Economic Education, or FEE, about the, quote, welfare trap, unquote. Charles writes, quote, Some households that receive larger benefits or higher state taxes have even higher effective rates. 10% of households just above the poverty line face a marginal rate higher than 65%. For each additional dollar earned in this range, these households would lose almost two-thirds to taxes or lost benefits, unquote. On the other hand, he says, the comparable rate for the highest earners is only 43.4%, and these earners make more than 400% of the poverty threshold. Charles says that if the government is going to continue funding public support, it needs to encourage self-sufficiency and make it easier for people to transition off benefits. Quote, absent comprehensive reform, the flawed current system will continue to fall short even as the government funnels hundreds of billions of dollars into it each year. Unquote. Overall, proponents say that the current public support system has not effectively lowered poverty rates overall. Spending on anti-poverty programs has grown five times when adjusted for inflation, from 3% of public spending in 1973 to 20% today. And yet, the poverty rate remains stagnant. Between 1960 and 1969, the number of people living at or below the poverty threshold fell 44%. Then, over the next 50 years, proponents say that the number has fluctuated between 11 and 15%. Justin Murray is a business commentator. In 2020, he wrote an op-ed in Fee saying, quote, It's this lack of improvement over a five-decade period that is interesting, especially considering that poverty rates had consistently been dropping for over a century, unquote. 
He says this is largely because there is no incentive system to graduate people off assistance, which means recipients have neither the training nor the tools to exit these programs. Proponents say that public support programs have created an ill-designed cycle. For instance, out of the 69 programs the government operates, only two require employment. Some say that these relaxed requirements encourage some recipients to stay on public support, rather than seeking meaningful employment. In 2011, now former President Obama said that some public support programs in the past were not well designed, and in some cases did encourage dependency. He said, quote, As someone who worked in low-income neighborhoods, I've seen it where people weren't encouraged to work, weren't encouraged to upgrade their skills, were just getting a check, and over time their motivation starts to diminish. And I think even if you're progressive, you've got to acknowledge that some of these things have not been well designed, unquote. Some supporters of lowering public support spending say that this dependence is caused by the structure of a tax dead zone. As Charles pointed out in his fee op-ed in 2016, Justin echoed four years later, quote, The tax structure necessary to fund redistribution schemes naturally creates a tax dead zone. What this dead zone does is create an income range where, after all taxes and benefits are accounted for, earning an extra dollar in gross income results in either no change or a reduction in net income, unquote. Proponents say that this system essentially taxes each extra dollar in earnings at 100% or more, effectively penalizing a person for exiting public support. This so-called dead zone stretches tens of thousands of dollars. Justin says, quote, If the person estimates they're unable to consistently earn above roughly $60,000 a year, it's better not to try and to stick around $18,000 a year since the net benefit structure at $18,000 results in more resources to live on than at $45,000, unquote. Supporters say that on top of a tax dead zone, long-term unemployment benefits can serve as their own dependency cycle. After an extended period of unemployment, they say workers are less likely to be appealing to employers or may even lack the skills for employment. Instead, if these benefits were limited or reduced, it may encourage more consistent employment for eligible working adults. Some proponents say to eliminate the dependency cycle, public support programs should be updated to encourage self-sufficiency, eliminate self-defeating behaviors like underemployment or unstable relationships, and support increasing psychological well-being. This is not an elimination of public support, but instead a restructuring to ensure they are effective for those who need it and fiscally responsible for society as a whole. So, to recap, proponents of reducing public support programs say these programs are wrought with fraud and improper payments. This means people who need support aren't getting it, and those who don't need it are. Supporters also say that these programs increase taxation and have become too expensive to maintain. They say it is not the government's responsibility to take care of people, but instead the individual's. Finally, proponents say that public support programs encourage dependency on the government and that they don't effectively lower poverty levels. After the break, we'll take a look at the other side of public opinion, that the government should invest more in public support programs. But first, let's take a quick break. we're back. In 2020, 9.2% of Americans across the country lived at or below the poverty threshold. New Mexico topped the list of states with the most people living at this threshold, 20.6% of residents. But among these Americans, it is estimated that at least 13 million people who live at this threshold don't receive any benefits. The Urban Institute is a policy think tank. It reports that 72% of people living at or below the poverty threshold received benefits from at least one public support program. For those living at half of the poverty threshold or below, up to 30% of people do not receive any assistance. The Urban Institute reports that approximately 19% of the U.S. population received welfare during an average month. 
59 million Americans nationwide. SNAP benefits has the largest usage rate. About 40 million people use food assistance benefits each month. Spending on public support programs has fluctuated in recent years. In 2015, approximately 10% of the federal budget was allocated for these programs. Three years later, that number fell to about 5.6%. Supporters say that public support programs provide necessary support for low-income households across the country. These programs aid them in a time of need and propel them towards self-sufficiency, offering a necessary safety net as they seek employment, attend school, raise children, care for the elderly, and more. Proponents in support of public support spending cite the following reasons. 1. Public support programs close income inequality gaps, reduce poverty levels, and support low-income working households. 2. Public support programs increase access to health care for low-income families, particularly children. And 3. Public support programs provide a safety net for those who need it and are designed to help people get back on their feet. Let's take a look at each of these one by one. First, proponents say that public support programs close income inequality gaps, reduce poverty levels, and support low-income working households. UC Berkeley found that nearly three-quarters of people receiving public support benefits are members of working families. But even as the economy continues to expand, hourly wages have largely remained stagnant since the 1970s. Supporters say this stalled progress means an increasing number of people simply cannot make ends meet. Public support programs help low-income households, including both individuals and families with children, close income inequality gaps and begin to rise above the poverty threshold. Researchers at UC Berkeley found that wage trends in the 21st century were largely flat or negative for the entire bottom 70% of wage distribution. Coupled with the decline of employer-provided health insurance, they say many Americans have turned to public support programs to fill the gap. Some programs, like SNAP benefits, play an essential role in fighting hunger across the United States. Other programs, like Medicaid or CHIP, provide necessary health care access for individuals and families. The average public support benefits vary significantly between states and programs. The exact amount can also vary based on the number of people in a household and whether any of them are employed. For example, estimates show that the average SNAP benefit is $127 a month for individuals. The average TAMF benefit is about $450 a month. Some public support programs, such as TAMF, require that low-income households are working. This program is intended to be used as a temporary aid as an individual or family works towards financial security. Proponents say that the low minimum wage traps low-income earners in a cycle of struggling to afford basic needs, which then makes them reliant on public support programs. Gwendolyn Mink is a policy scholar and author. She says that viewing people as morally responsible for their own situation ignores systemic inequalities in the economy and U.S. culture. She says, quote, The kind of income inequality that is in the system puts especially women of color at the lowest end of the earning spectrum, which is a sentence of abject poverty, unquote. Gwendolyn says that many people receiving benefits need them because they cannot support a family and pay bills with the money they earn which is largely due to the low minimum wage. A single person working full-time all year at the current federal minimum wage would earn a gross income of just over $15,000. This salary is less than $2,000 above the poverty threshold for a one-person household in 2019. Supporters say that by raising the minimum wage, you would create income security for millions of Americans nationwide and lift approximately 900,000 workers above the poverty threshold. And thus, you would reduce the amount of people who use public support programs. Between 2009 and 2011, the federal government paid more than $127 billion a year on four public support programs for working families, Medicaid-slash-CHIP, TAMF, SNAP, and the Earned Income Tax Credit. State governments together spent an additional $25 billion a year on Medicaid-slash-CHIP and TAMF programs. Researchers at UC Berkeley found that more than half of combined state and federal spending in public support programs goes to working families. They say increasing the minimum wage could make a big impact. 
quote, higher wages and employer-provided health care would both lower state and federal public assistance costs and allow all levels of government to better target how their tax dollars are used, unquote. EPI is the Economic Policy Institute. In 2016, it found that for every dollar wages rise for low-wage workers, public support program spending falls by approximately $5.2 billion. And analysts say this is a conservative estimate. It could even be higher. David Cooper is an analyst at EPI. He says when employers pay low wages and working people turn to public benefits programs to make ends meet, businesses are effectively getting free subsidies from taxpayers. Quote, policies that raise wages would free up resources that could then be used to strengthen anti-poverty programs or make investments in any number of other policy priorities. The simplest way we can do this is by raising the federal minimum wage, unquote. The EPI found that if the bottom 30% of wage earners received a raise of just over a dollar an hour, more than 1 million working people would no longer need public support programs. And this could make a big impact. Raising the minimum wage to $12 over four years would reduce public support spending by $17 billion. But since attempts to raise the minimum wage have regularly stalled, supporters say that public support programs play an essential role in filling that gap. About 60% of all workers making less than minimum wage receive benefits from at least one program, either directly or through another member in their household. And more than half of workers paid between minimum wage and just under $10 an hour receive public benefits. 46% of all working recipients work full-time. The EPI reports that people who work in the arts, entertainment, tourism, food services, and retail are disproportionately represented among public support recipients. Supporters say that public support programs help these low-income households get by each month. They provide a necessary role in helping these individuals and families survive. And proponents say that these programs historically have helped. After modern public support programs were implemented in the 1960s, the number of people living at or below the poverty threshold fell 44%. As of 2020, this number has fallen to just over 9% of Americans. This is down from 15.1% in 2010 and 10.5% in 2019. Supporters say that by continuing to fund public support programs, you could provide the temporary assistance people need to lift themselves above the poverty threshold. These programs help close income gaps because they provide resources to those who need them most. Some supporters say it also pays it forward, putting money into local communities and economies through local businesses who accept WIC, SNAP, or TAMF benefits. Second, proponents say that public support programs increase access to health care for low-income families, particularly children. Supporters say that there's a direct impact between an individual's health and their ability to provide for their household. For instance, lack of access may mean a person is unable to maintain a job, receive proper care, or even may experience greater health risks. About 20% of the U.S. population is enrolled in Medicaid. This program provides free or low-cost medical care to eligible low-income households. Just under two-thirds of all adult Medicaid recipients work either full or part-time. For those who are not working, 12% cannot work due to caregiving responsibilities. Another 11% cannot work because of a disability. KFF is the Kaiser Family Foundation, a health policy nonprofit. It reports that Medicaid plays a critical role in providing health care access for vulnerable populations, including 48% of children with special health care needs, 45% of adults with disabilities, and more than 60% of nursing home residents. Proponents say that free or low-cost health care access is essential for individual health across the country. KFF reports that people with Medicaid benefits are less likely to postpone procedures or go without needed care due to cost concerns. For example, quote, Medicaid coverage of low-income pregnant women and children has contributed to dramatic declines in infant and child mortality in the U.S. A growing body of research indicates that Medicaid eligibility during childhood is associated with reduced teen mortality, improved long-run educational attainment, reduced disability, 
and lower rates of hospitalization and emergency department visits in later life, unquote. Expanding state Medicaid benefits among adults has been associated with increased health care access, improved self-reported health, and lower mortality rates. It is also reported to provide additional avenues of treatment for those struggling with opioid addiction. KFF says, quote, The Medicaid expansion with enhanced federal funding has provided states with additional resources to cover many adults with addictions who were previously excluded from the program. Medicaid covers 4 in 10 non-elderly adults with opioid addiction, unquote. According to a KFF poll, 74% of Americans have a very or somewhat favorable view on Medicaid. These majorities are found across party lines. 82% of Democrats and 65% of Republicans share the same supportive view. Proponents say that public support systems like Medicaid and CHIP offer comprehensive health care access for millions of Americans, many of which are in working households. Funding from Medicaid plays a large role in supporting hospitals, nursing homes, and health care workers, and it also helps address public health concerns, such as the opioid epidemic. Supporters say that it is especially important to support these programs because they can have a direct impact on millions of low-income children across the country. As of February 2021, about 1 in 7 U.S. children live at or below the poverty threshold. This is nearly 11 million children across the country today. Children under the age of 18 make up 41% of all people using public support benefits. This is approximately 24 million children and adolescents who use at least one program each month. More than 9 million children are enrolled in CHIP, providing essential access to healthcare during formative years. The Center for American Progress is a progressive think tank. It reports that children from low-income families tend to have worse health outcomes than other children. Poverty is associated with higher rates of asthma, malnutrition, trauma, and chronic diseases. Supporters say that while many children are covered under Medicaid or CHIP, about 8% of children across the country are currently uninsured, which means they lack the access to stable health care they need. The Center for American Progress reports more support in these programs is necessary. Quote, future changes to the health care system must ensure stable, affordable coverage for low-income children and provide early and consistent screening, diagnostic, and treatment services so that children have access to comprehensive and preventative health services that they need. Unquote. Beyond access to health care services, public support programs provide other benefits that increase health and well-being for low-income individuals of all ages. This includes SNAP and WIC benefits, which provide access to fresh, healthy food, and school meal programs, which ensure children receive free or low-cost meals at school. Supporters say that these programs are preventative measures for good health, and further investing in these programs can make a big impact. For instance, both SNAP and WIC, quote, have been tied to positive outcomes for mothers and infants, and children with access to these programs can experience significant health gains and improved long-term health, educational, and economic outcomes, unquote. Third, proponents say public support programs provide a safety net for those who need it and are designed to help people back on their feet. A common myth perpetuated throughout U.S. culture over the past 50 years is the welfare queen. This moniker points back to the story of Linda Taylor, a woman who defrauded public support programs in Chicago in order to live a lavish lifestyle. Her story became a powerful stereotype used over and over again by critics to voice concerns about public benefits. In the mid-20th century, Linda used fake names and described hardships and children she did not have to earn expedited checks from AFDC, the cash welfare program now known as TAMF. With a rotating number of aliases, she moved on from AFDC to defraud both other public programs and private businesses, such as life insurance policies. In 1974, the Chicago Tribune ran a story about this fraud. It launched her into infamy and unintentionally created a stereotype that would long outlive the original story. The New Republic reports that Linda Taylor quickly became a political tool, and the extent of her fraud was vastly overreported. Quote, The amount that Taylor actually filched from the AFDC program was much less than authorities claimed. Press reports included unsubstantiated assertions that she raked in tens of thousands of dollars. 
Reagan repeatedly cited a six-figure income. In reality, a grand jury indicted her in 1974 for receiving payments adding up to a grand total of $7,608.02, later increased to $8,865.67, Former President Ronald Reagan alleged Linda defrauded the system to the tune of $150,000 a year. He used this story as a catalyst to push through massive budget reforms during his administration. These reforms cut $25 billion from public support programs, cut off more than 400,000 households from AFDC, and millions of more households saw reduced public benefits. Supporters today say that welfare queens are a myth, not a reality. Instead, they say that about a third of people who use public support programs need help for less than one year. The majority of public support programs are designed to temporarily provide enough resources to maintain a modest standard of living. This is seen as a way to help low-income households or individuals get back on their feet after difficult or unexpected circumstances, such as unemployment or an injury. Some programs have eligibility requirements that prevent people from using public support, period, and other programs have federal lifetime limits. This, proponents say, illustrates how these programs are a safety net designed to help people become self-sufficient and that they are not a way of life. Gwendolyn Mink says, quote, Only 27% of families who need welfare, who are in poverty and qualify for welfare, actually receive it. Most people who need it don't get it. The law is so cruelly structured to incentivize non-participation or to actually exclude participation, unquote. Supporters say that the number of people in the United States who depend on public support programs is significantly lower than the number of people who receive support from these programs. In 2013, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, released a report differentiating these statistics. Dependence on public support programs was defined as, quote, the proportion of all individuals and families that receive more than half of their total family income in one year from TAMF, SNAP, and or SSI, unquote. HHS also clarified that this definition was in and of itself subjective. Who was to say what determined dependence? But using a 50% point was a straightforward measure that could easily be tracked over time. HHS found that in 2019, 19.9% of low-income U.S. citizens received benefits from TAMF, SSI, or SNAP. On the other hand, 4.6% of low-income citizens were found dependent on these programs. This was down from 5.9% dependence in 1993, but up from a record 3% in 2000. The rise in dependence was largely attributed to the economic hardships associated with the Great Recession. Proponents say these numbers illustrate how the number of people who depend on these programs is significantly smaller than the number of people who perceive to depend on public support. CBPP is the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a progressive think tank. In 2012, it reported that more than 90% of benefit dollars spent in public support programs aid elderly people, people with disabilities, or low-income working Americans. Only 9% of benefits go to people who are younger than 65, without disabilities, and don't live in a working household. CBPP says, quote, Moreover, the vast bulk of that 9% goes for medical care, unemployment insurance benefits, which individuals must have a significant work history to receive, Social Security survivor benefits for the children and spouses of deceased workers, and Social Security benefits for retirees between the ages of 62 and 64, unquote. In fact, supporters say the majority of these remaining benefits, 7 out of 9%, provide one of those four benefits to retirees in their 60s. And when looking at the programs directly targeted to low-income Americans, more than four out of every $5 goes to low-income workers, elderly people, or people with disabilities. The CBPP reported in 2012 more than half of all benefits were allocated for people over 65. Proponents say that public programs offer basic support for bare necessities. 
With this reality, they say households use government assistance as a way to build up their finances during tough times, with the ultimate goal of getting back on their feet. As Gwendolyn says, quote, nobody wants to stay on welfare if they can get a decent job with decent wages with decent working conditions, unquote. The Brookings Institute is a conservative think tank. In 2002, it reported that about three quarters of people work generally full time within the first year after stopping public support benefits. That same year, HHS reported that 60% of people who stopped benefits were employed. In addition, the Urban Institute reported in 2002 that more than three-quarters of U.S. families who ended public support benefits between 1997 and 1999 did not re-enroll. Households that used transitional support services, like childcare and health insurance, were also less likely to re-enroll. Supporters say this historic data points to benefits of public support programs as a safety net for low-income households, and its track record as a springboard for eventual independence once again. To recap, proponents of public support programs say that these programs close income inequality gaps and reduce poverty levels. They say that these programs have been created with qualification markers that ensure only those who need support receive it. Supporters also say that these programs increase health care access for low-income families, including children, who make up about 41% of the people living at or below the poverty threshold. Finally, proponents say that public support programs provide a safety net for those who need it. These programs are designed to help people get back on their feet or make ends meet. On the other hand, proponents of reducing public support programs say these programs are wrought with fraud and improper payments. This means people who need support aren't getting it, and those who don't need it are. Supporters also say that these programs increase taxation and have become too expensive to maintain. They say it is not the government's responsibility to take care of people, but instead the individual's. Finally, proponents say that public support programs encourage dependency on the government and they don't effectively lower poverty levels. But what do you think? Should the U.S. invest more or less into public support programs? What is the role of the collective when helping the individual? And what should it be? Is it the government's responsibility to aid vulnerable members in society, or should other groups like churches or nonprofits take this on instead? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reaction may be used in an upcoming episode or another part of the We the Voters site. Also, let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email if you'd like to find out more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. These are quick things that can make a big impact in helping this project grow. As we draw closer to the end of season one, just three episodes left, I wanted to say thank you for your support of this project. Every time you tell someone about this show, it makes a huge impact, and it truly means so much to me. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with another conversation about U.S. culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. We the Voters.